friends. Good morning, all of you. Good morning, Lou. Good morning. So, little bit of a detour today from what we've been hearing about in the last nine or ten sessions, but something that is probably very, very, very close to my heart, very important in my life and those of many around me, and I hope something that will affect you and change you deeply. You've heard about me talking about all the psychiatric conditions I've treated <clears throat> in the last 50 years or so, um, and now that I'm retired, I wanted to write down my memoirs, not just in terms of the clinical aspects of my treatment, but also what else shaped me, both as a psychiatrist and as a human being. And this story that I'll tell you has to do with religion, something that I was not at all a fan of or an admirer of for most of my life. I knew about it. I came from a religious family, um, but I didn't understand it. I'm a physician. I'm a scientist. And I didn't understand why people went to houses of worship and basically closed their eyes and essentially bargained with whoever that person thought God was, closed their eyes and asked for things and promised something in return. Didn't make sense to me at all. Didn't make sense that a powerful God, wherever he, she, it was, would basically just grant people what they wanted because they were begging. Because basically, to me, going to a house of worship, closing your eyes, folding your hands, and begging for something would cause that God to grant it to you just because you begged. It didn't make sense. None of these rituals made any sense to me. So I basically, on Sundays, would be at home watching um, football or something like that, doing my work or watching football, and my wife would go to various seminars, lectures, and stuff, often having to do with some spiritual component. Um, I've known my wife since we were both 12 years old. She knows me very, very well. She can read me better than I can read myself sometimes. <laughs> One day she comes back to me on a Sunday, the day that changed my life. And she said to me, I need to talk to you. And I said, sure. She said, I just came from a lecture. And this person I heard is in his 20s. She says, much younger than us. But he speaks better than we can speak, has a great command of the English language. And he spoke on something that she says, since I know you as well as I know you, she says, you will benefit greatly and you'll be very interested. And I said, what is it? And she said, just go. And I said, no, you have to tell me what it is. And she said, it has to do with spirituality and religion. I said, no way. <laughs> I said, not me. I'm not going. And she's never, never asked me for anything. And she said to me, she says, do this for me one time. Just go one time. If you don't like it, you don't have to go again. Please. Yeah. I said, okay, is he, when's he speaking again? She said, I believe next Sunday. So next Sunday... I reluctantly dragged my feet and I went with her to this lecture. From the moment he started speaking, 
His name is Gautam Jain. From the moment he started speaking, it was like I was a dirty car, very dirty car, going through a car wash, coming out clean on the other side. I felt refreshed after listening to him. And for the first time in my life, various concepts that I'd struggled with my whole life became crystal clear. And afterwards, I said, "When I, I can't wait for a whole week to listen to this again. When can I listen to you again? And he said, well, I lecture almost on a daily basis in different parts of Manhattan, New York, and New Jersey. He never charged, charges or charged for his uh, uh, lectures. Everything is just for the uh, beauty of communicating to others to make the world a better place. So I started going to every single one of his lectures. Wherever he had a lecture, I would go there. And one time he made a joke in the audience. He says, see this guy sitting here? <laughs> he says, he's like my shadow. I can't get rid of him. Every lecture I am, there he is. Um, and I found it so fascinating. I still feel like I'm a kindergartner uh, in this whole study. But I thought I would share this with you today because if I move one eighth of an inch along this long journey, that one eighth of an inch has changed me so greatly that I'm hoping that it would do the same for you, as it has for many of people in history that you have heard of. So let me back up and please just listen to this one session today, one half hour piece, and then make up your own mind. But don't discontinue watching right now. So this whole thing started in 1784 when the British ruled India under the East India Company. The British used to send over people and give them titles like Governor General. And one person that they were sending over uh, was Governor General Warren Hastings. And he was supposed to be the Governor General of India, was the Governor General of India, um, from 1772 until 1785. And the dictate to him from the Queen, as well as the Parliament and the East India Company was, go to this country and try and convert as many of the people there to Christianity as you can, because obviously they don't know anything about religion, <laughs> and they should be converted. And that basically, if you look at the parliamentary debates in uh, England at the time, there was a great deal of debate as to say, why is England in India in the first place? Right. They haven't declared war with you. They didn't invade anything. You have no right to be there and take whatever they have. And their argument was, which one, is to say that they're not a Christian country, and therefore we have the right to teach them the proper religion. So Governor General Warren Hastings— That was the basic basis for colonization? That continued the colonization? In India. Yeah. I don't know about right. the history about New Zealand or Australia, what they used as sure. uh, justification there, but in India it was that they were heathens and they needed to be converted. So Governor General Hastings um, 
went in India and said, I need to change all of this, convert these people to Christianity. And some of the ancient um, the uh, people who studied ancient scriptures came up to him and said, before you do that, would you want to know what it is that you're converting or what it is that you're changing? And he said, okay. What we believe. You know, what do yeah. you believe? You believe in, you know, things that uh, makes no sense. And they said, well, let us tell you what we believe in. And so they actually started telling him about one of the more recent scriptural books called the Bhagavad Gita, which is about 5,000 years old. And that, I say, is recent because... The Gita basically took all the older um, writings in the Upanishads and Vedanta and put it in a more understandable form of a story and presented it to the lay people. And since it's more understandable, even that has become a little hard for people to understand today, but they explained to him what the meaning was of the Gita. And he was so astounded by the depth and beauty of this and how it changed his life, as it did mine, that he said, I have to get somebody to translate this into English. And so he searched around for somebody who could translate this, um, and he found a person by the name of Charles Wilkins. And Charles Wilkins says, yes, I know the Gita. I have studied it. I lived in, <clears throat> in India, and he continued to live in India in one of the holy cities called Banaras. And in 1785, Charles Wilkins published a book, which I think you have will load onto the computer, mm -hmm. which shows a photograph of Charles Wilkins and the book itself. And the book was called uh, The Bhagavad Gita, a dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna. And that book was published in 1785. And the foreword um, in that book goes something uh, by Governor General Warren Hastings, says something like, long after the sun no longer shines on the British flag, the beauty of the Gita will continue to give solace and compassion and peace to all of mankind. Mm -hmm. As a result, the British Parliament, the government, the uh, Queen and East India Company was furious with Governor General Hastings and brought him back to England, stripped him of his um, duties, brought him back, and I, I don't know exactly what happened to him after that, but he was no longer given that power and prestige. The book, however, became very famous, and within five years of it being translated to English, it, was, it made a worldwide stir. It really, people were hungry for it in 1785. It was translated to every single language that there was. Translated to French, German, Italian, Russian, Latin. Really? All over. Every mm -hmm. country had it. And all over Europe, there were centers opening called the Centers for the Study of Sanskrit, Centers for the Study of Asiatic Studies or Scriptures. Mm -hmm. Now... Going to the United States, at the time, in the United States, many people who were struggling with their own concepts, most all of them were Christian, were very, very much influenced by this book of, by um, uh, Charles Wilkins, very influenced. One of them was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a, um, uh, a pastor 
or a preacher in a church and he had doubts and all of this is written I'm not making this up this mm -hmm. is all in Ralph Waldo Emerson's own writings in his journals he had doubts about um, uh, giving this sacrament um, and he had severe questions about what he was doing and he went into a depression and he resigned his post um, from the church and when he resigned he became depressed and he said he heard about um, Charles Wilkins book and he got into a steamship they didn't have planes then <laughs> he got into a ship and went over to England and the history is fascinating I could go on for a long time I'd have to do some research but I used to know this off the top of my head I don't know it anymore but the number of people that he got influenced into reading about the Gita were many so he went there and he studied uh, the Gita under uh, Charles Wilkins and others in England and he said this makes a lot of sense to me and he said the beauty is that it's not a religion. Gita means song of life. The whole of the Gita is basically a way of life and how to conduct yourself in life without touting any particular uh, deity, deity yeah. or God or any particular religion. Just says this is how you need to live in life. Be respectful to your fellow human being, be respectful to the world, be respectful of nature. And that's really what all of these fathers of American literature and British literature then came back and said, hey, I can still be following my own religion and yet follow these dictates right. as per the Gita. So um, William Blake was, in addition to being an author and a writer and a father of American literature, was also a painter and he painted a lot and he often sold his pictures and paintings um, and they became bestsellers and raised some money for him. One of the things that the Gita talks about is Brahmins and many people know Brahmins as a caste and Brahmins are supposedly the intellectuals, the wise people and the top class right. but essentially the Gita does not make that classification. The Gita talks about a Brahmin being somebody who's equanimous, and an equanimous may, means somebody who's at a level field, doesn't get high about certain things, and depressed at other times, mm -hmm. and angry at things, and basically equanimous through life, neither ups nor downs, and very peaceful, does things in a very... Um, concentrated manner. Even keeled would come. Even keeled is yeah. the right way to say yeah. it. So he said, well, I'm a Brahmin, um, Blake said of himself. He says, I'm a Brahmin because I'm pretty even keeled and this is what Christianity teaches me. So I can be Christian as well as I can be a Brahmin. So he painted this uh, painting and he called it The Brahmins and basically showed himself as a white man surrounded by uh, Indian uh, scholars of the Gita, and all of them were termed the Brahmins. Mm -hmm. As a tease, people started calling him a Brahmin. They <laughs> said, and in fact, since he was from Boston and traveled to England, they called, it, called him the Boston Brahmin. <laughs> and that name stuck, and they liked it, Emerson and um, William Blake and so on. So I made a list yeah, of... as a Boston native, I'm aware of it, but 
You were not aware of it? I'm aware of it, but I didn't know the meaning behind it. Yeah, if you look up... I thought it was more or less the elite or an upper class. Yeah, well, that's what it says everywhere, that it says Boston Brahmins are supposedly those who are blue-blooded. Yes. But this is where it came from. This is where it came from in 17, I forget the date, the year, where Blake drew that painting, Mm -hmm. uh, Boston Brahmins. But the following founding fathers of America, of American literature and poetry, were very influenced by Wilkins' translation of the Gita. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Thoreau, Amos Alcott, Sarah Fuller, Walt Whitman, Henry Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, James Russell Lowell, and the list goes on and on and on. I'm not a scholar of American literature nor British literature. That's a list of who's who. Is that right? In American literature history, that's a list of who's who, yes. Okay. Yeah. So the American poets then formed a group, many groups actually, all of which followed the dictates of the Gita. The, The Gita does not really tell people what to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say you may not do this, and it doesn't say you must do this, but basically says this is what is the right thing to do. Right. So they formed other Vedic groups in USA, and they called them the Transcendentalists, ten- Transcendentalists, the Concord Movement, and then the New Thought Movement. Mm. And if you look amongst their writings, you will see that it's heavily um, relying on the Gita, influenced by, influenced by it, and it actually uh, says it. And the Emerson's Transcendentalist Club opposed rituals and any dogmatic theology, any dogmatic theology. A lot of religions are very dogmatic in right. what it does, whereas the Gita never says, don't do this or do this. There's no dogmatic theology. He also pro- promoted self-examination individualism. Self-examination is exactly what the Gita uh, proposes. Look inside yourself. Mm -hmm. Examine yourself. Examine your motives. Examine why you do things. And Emerson talked of beauty of nature and respect of nature and all living things. And he also wrote that divinity permeated in all living beings. And that's exactly what is in the scriptures. In 1845, Emerson wrote in his diary that he was reading the Gita and essays on the Vedas. Now, the Vedas are older books based on which the Gita was written, uh, and the Gita simplified what was in the Vedas and Upanishads. Emerson said, quote, I owe a magnificent day to the Bhagavad Gita. It is the first of books, as if it were an empire, spoke to us, nothing small or unworthy, but a large, serene, consistent voice of an old intelligence which in another age and another climate had pondered and thus disposed of the same questions which exercise us now. Interesting. This is what Emerson wrote. Mm -hmm. Henry David Thoreau, again in Concord, Mass., was a student of the Gita. He wrote, quote, I would say to the readers of the scriptures that if they wish for a good book, read the Bhagavad Gita translated by Charles Wilkins. It deserves to be read with reverence, even by Yankees. (laughs) Besides the Bhagavad Gita, our Shakespeare seems sometimes youthfully green. (laughs) The Western world has not yet derived from the East all the light it is destined to derive thence. Close quote. 
He further wrote, quote, Whenever I have read any part of the Vedas, I have felt that some unearthly and unknown light illuminated me. And I can say this from personal experience. In the great teachings of the Vedas, there is no touch of sectarianism. It is of all ages, of all climes, and all nationalities. And it is the royal road for the attainment of the great knowledge. When I am at it, I feel that I am under the spangled heavens of a summer night. Hmm. Close quote. Interesting. And the last one, Henry David Thoreau wrote, I cannot read a sentence in the book of the Hindus without being elevated as upon the table land of the Ghats. Ghats are the mountains, hills. It has such a rhythm as the winds of the desert, such a tide as the Ganges, and seems as superior to criticism as the Himalayan mountains. Even at this late hour, unworn by time with a native and inherent dignity, it wears the English dress as indifferently as it wears the Sanskrit. Wow. Intelligent, thoughtful men profoundly impacted by this. And I've only given you a small, a very small smattering, friends, of different famous people who have written about the Gita. I would encourage you, or if you want, if you write me comments, I'll do this for you again. We'll talk about other people who have been influenced by the Gita and what exactly it teaches. My point at that time was I heard Gautam Jain speaking that one time changed my life my, I thank my wife for that much as I was dragging my feet to go <laughs> I'm so glad I went it changed my life and I am eager to try and promote other people to get to read this doesn't matter which religion somebody is this is not a religion this is a way of life how to live how to be uh, and hopefully in future sessions we will go over that. Next week I've actually asked my teacher, my guru, Gautam Jain, to be on the show with us. Um, and although he may not be here in the studio, and we may not actually be able to see him, but we can hear him. And between now and then, a week, if you could write to me your comments to say what you'd like uh, Gautam Jain to speak about, maybe we can ask him. But it is a change of life. I talked about um, my medical school days where I learned about the body, the mind, and what I learned from the Gita just in terms of the physiology and the concept of how mind works, how the brain works, how the intellect works and the body works is far, far superior to anything that any of us have read in uh, our medical school days, number one. Number two, it talks of these stages of waking and sleeping and deep sleeping and dreams and it's fascinating this hmm. is all scientific it talks about god in ways that you would never imagine i thought that this is a five thousand year old scripture what could it tell me a modern scientist and it's so beautiful and, and modern scientists who had problems with religion, who had questions about religions, who had doubts about religion. As many of us do. Sure. Many of us say, you know, we look up in the sky, we say, wait, you're telling me that there's a heaven up there. We've gone everywhere in space. I don't see any heaven. Right. There's pearly gates and 
you know, heaven? No, I don't see it's that. It's difficult for us to reconcile sometimes. They say you go down and, and there's hell there. Well, where? You yeah. know, we've explored everything. We don't know this. And there's many other concepts that every religion, no matter which religion somebody is, there are questions that you have that basically get answered by much of what I've heard through Gautam Jain and from the Gita. And I'm hoping that this will... Um, I, uh, something can transfer to you that you can do your own research. People can find people can find peace with the word spirituality. It's somewhere in between philosophy and religion. Yes. Yeah. Spirituality yes. is uh, most of us are seeking spirituality at this point because of those same questions that we deal with. And most people who talk about uh, the Gita actually talk about it as more of a philosophical yeah. uh, uh, study than anything spiritual or religious. And if that's what makes it sit right with people, sure. that's fine. But I can tell you that it helped me and it helped my patients. Many patients, when I started talking like this, have said to me, say, what changed in you? Because you're a changed person. And they've known me for many years. Um, and more even keeled? More even Did keeled, it, yeah. more laser focused. Mm -hmm. You see, what it talks about is the fact that we all, and in, an, uh, in a small one little segue, uh, we talk about selfish needs. And what the Gita assists you in thinking about is not to be selfish. What am I getting out of it gets removed. And you say, what is the right thing to do? is what replaces that. Mm -hmm. If you know what the right thing to do is, your own selfish needs will be fulfilled many times over. And you'll be much more satisfied with doing the right thing for the right purpose instead of doing it for me selfishly. Right. Um, so just as an example, you know, a physician comes in and sees a patient and a patient walks in to see the uh, physician and the, if the physician says oh here's another ten dollars for my visit that this patient is coming to me with and he sees that person as a ten dollar reward for him right it's the wrong way and Gita says basically you're supposed to do what is the right thing your patients coming to see you for such and such a symptom if you say what can I do to help him or her how can I help him the rewards will be far greater. You get your ten dollars right. as your fee, no <laughs> question about it. But and many more times because you've done the right thing, the patient is happy and the rewards will follow. Entrepreneurs talk about this a lot. Instead of trying to sell something, try to help people. Yes, and the money will follow. If you do it for the right reasons, mm -hmm. not looking at the goal and and the prize at the end, but what is necessary to be done, the prize always is guaranteed. Right because you're doing the right thing. We can talk more about that as uh, time goes on. I'm looking forward to it, too. Yep. Okay, good. And next week, uh, hopefully, we will be able to have Gautam Jain on the program with us. Please send me your comments. Send me your questions. Send me your thoughts and your ideas. This is a new venture for me, and I'm doing it so that I hope that we can all share in it. Please join me.